So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 5. We're in the beginning part of this sermon. If you don't have a, a Bible, you can go ahead and get one from the ushers that are passing it around. We started last week with the kind of the opening section of Jesus' sermon, a section that is known as the Beatitudes. You may remember what that word Beatitude meant. We talked about it last week. Not a Beatitude versus a don't Beatitude. It's not just talking about our attitudes. Does anybody remember what it meant? Here's the hint. Look at the first word that Jesus says in Matthew 5, 3. Blessed. Blessed. In each of the statements that Jesus says in this passage, he's talking about what it means to be blessed. One whom God commends, affirms, the, the good life, the right kind of living. Jesus is describing the blessed life. And as we see there in Matthew 5, verse 3, he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. We'll talk more about that in just a second. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is talking about the blessed life, the good life, the life of citizens of the kingdom of heaven, those who acknowledge Jesus as king. Last Sunday, we looked at the first four of these Beatitudes. And this morning, we're going to look at the next four. And kind of what we saw last week, these are not just pithy, memorable sayings of Jesus. He's not just waxing poetic here. The Beatitudes, these eight simple statements that Jesus makes, define for us a very radical counterintuitive, countercultural, does not come naturally to any of us. None of us grew up living this way. And yet Jesus says, this is the life of his kingdom. What I want to do as we jump into the passage is remind you, last week I gave you five points to guide us as we look at these Beatitudes as a whole. So let me throw this up here again. We'll just walk through these briefly as we jump into the passage. The Beatitudes are about living as citizens of the kingdom of heaven in the midst of, among the kingdoms of this world. That's the theme of this entire sermon. Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, which together are what we call the Sermon on the Mount. The whole thing is what Jesus says. He's called a group of disciples to him, and we find out in, in verse 1, the disciples come to him on this mountain to be taught by him. There's crowds listening in as well. But this sermon is instruction to disciples of what it means to be a disciple. And it is at the same time an invitation to others, the crowds listening in, come join, come join in this way of life, but understand what it looks like. The entire sermon is about living in this countercultural contrast way to those around us. The second main thing to keep in mind with this is that the Beatitudes are defining for us the blessed life, the good life, but it's not the good life in an ideal world of poppy dogs and rainbows. It's the blessed life, the good life in the midst of a broken world, which is why he says it is blessed to mourn, which is why he said there's even blessedness in persecution, being mistreated by others. The blessed life means exercising mercy toward others, seeking peace because there often is not peace in the midst of this broken world. The third one there we saw is that these beatitudes describe a blessed life, which is both already and not yet present realities in the life of those who are followers of Jesus, though the fullness of the reward, the blessing that he talks about, awaits the future. The fourth one, these are united, not separate qualities. It's not an a la carte, like which one off the menu do you want? I'd rather it be a peacemaker than persecuted. But they're different facets of the same diamond, different facets, descriptions of the same characteristics that all believers ought to have and to be increasing in. 
And the last one of these pointers that we'll look at today, there's kind of a logical flow. We saw that last week. There's a logical flow that Jesus is building out as we go through these. And in many ways, you can look at the first four Beatitudes and see that in large part, it's, it's dealing primarily with who we are in relation to God. But as we even saw through some of them last week, like meekness, it very quickly bends outward into the way that we operate with others as well. And that's what we'll see in the next four. And so what I'd love to ask you guys to do with me as we now jump into the passage, if you are able to, would you stand with me? And let's read Matthew chapter five, verses three through 12 together. If you're able to stand, would you stand with me? Again, this is just a way in which we, we show honor for the word of God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's sit. All right, so by way of kind of recap, we looked at those five main points. Last week, what I also wanted to give you on the beginning and end of the message was three questions to think about as we go through this. I want to remind you of those as well. In what we just read, as you look through those descriptions, especially as we, we jump into the last four this week, do you believe that this truly is the blessed life, the good, the right way to live within this world? Second, do you believe that these characteristics and actions are essential to our witness? It's what it means to be salt and light in the world as we'll look at next week. And third, are you willing to follow Jesus on this path? Learn from him, be trained by him in this type of character. Are you willing to lead others down this path? To not only believe for yourself that it is blessed to be persecuted for righteousness sake, but to look at your children if you have them and say, it is blessed for you as well. This is the good, the right way, though it is difficult. You see, we looked last week, again, starting in verse three, blessed are the poor in spirit. This truly blessed life looks like acknowledging our poverty in spirit, that we have nothing on our own of ourselves to commend us or make us acceptable to God. And not just to acknowledge that, but the second one, blessed are those who mourn, who grieve over their sin. Blessed are the meek, those who are honest, have an honest assessment of themselves and so therefore deal gently with others because we're aware of our own faults and flaws. He says the blessed ones are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because we know that we don't have it ourselves and we're not going to get it from ourselves. He says that those characteristics are blessed because those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied. 
Those who mourn will be comforted. Those who are meek will inherit the earth. Those who acknowledge their poverty in spirit, that's what it is to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. This is the character and lifestyle of what it means to embody and exemplify the good rule of Jesus in the midst of this broken world. That was last week. Now, having done that, let's jump in and look at verse seven. Jesus says this in verse seven, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Let's stop and consider this one together for a little bit. Consider how this one's connected to the ones we saw before. How is mercy connected to being poor in spirit, mourning, meek, and so forth? Those descriptions we looked at last week really do focus on our neediness before God. That to be a follower of Jesus means that you fundamentally do not believe that you have pulled yourself up by your own bootstraps, that you are a self-made person. You are dependent upon God for what you know you need that you cannot get from yourself. And if that's who you know yourself to be, that fundamentally changes the way you look at others, doesn't it? Seeing those around you, believer or unbeliever, as needing the very same mercy and kindness that God has shown you. You see, it works both ways. Blessed are those who show mercy to others because they recognize their own need for mercy. And because they trust in God's promise to show them mercy, this now leads them to show mercy to others. But we gotta talk for a second about what mercy means. Because in some ways, this is where it can get a little bit slippery in our minds. Maybe start with this. Mercy does not mean that we condone evil or that we excuse it away or explain it away. We do not condone sin, but it does mean demonstrating compassion towards sinners because we know that we are one too, right? It means often this experience of demonstrating mercy to others means holding conflicting emotions at the same time within us. A sense of grief and even anger over sin as rebellion against God, over the destructing effects that we see that it has, both on those who commit them and who commit them against others. It does mean a righteous anger, but yet at the same time, it means a sense of compassion, sympathy, kindness for those affected by sin, for sinners themselves, because we see ourselves in that too. We see our own need for that. In other words, I would say acting in mercy means feeling within ourselves something of what God feels. Both righteous anger towards sin and compassion towards sinners. Is that not the character of our God? Mercy is closely associated with another rich biblical word, the word grace. Maybe you're more familiar with that one or you just you hear it more often. I've often heard it described as like two sides of the same coin. Mercy and grace are connected. I found a really good explanation. John Stott, in his work on the Sermon on the Mount, he said this. He said, mercy, if we want to understand the distinction, but the, the connection between mercy and grace, it's this. Mercy deals with what we see of pain, misery, and distress. It deals with the results of sin. And grace deals with the sin and guilt itself. Does that make sense? Grace, dealing with sin or guilt itself. He says this. He says, grace extends pardon, forgiveness, Mercy extends relief. 
Grace cleanses and reinstates us. Mercy cures and heals and helps. Seeks to right the broken effects of sin in our lives. Martin Lloyd-Jones in his work on the Sermon on the Mount, he defined mercy as pity plus action. I like that. Pity plus action. Yes, feeling a sense of sorrow, compassion for those who are blind in their sin and suffering the, own, the effects of their own sin. But not just, not just feeling a sense of compassion, but being motivated to do something about it. And again, if you step back and think about if you're a follower of Jesus, what you believe that God has done for you, does it not reflect that same thing? A sense of sorrow, pity, compassion for you in your helpless estate. But then action to help you. Action to heal and restore you. Jesus did not just feel pity or compassion. He left the glory of heaven. He took on humanity. He lived amongst us, taught and healed. Ultimately, was falsely accused, put on a kangaroo court, sentenced to death that he did not deserve in your behalf. Did our God go to great lengths to act in mercy toward us? You bet he did. And if you know that, if you have experienced that and believe that to be true, it will transform the way that you act toward others. Blessed are the merciful because they will receive mercy and their awareness of their need for mercy and the mercy that God has and will show them motivates them to be merciful to others. As followers of Jesus, if this is true of us, we will not exalt ourselves over others. We will not carry ourselves with a sense of superiority toward others. See those around us as the enemy. See them as the people that are trying to destroy this country which if you pay attention is the way that both people on the right and the left of the political aisle talk about each other. They both see each other as the enemy, the destroyers. That's not, church, that is not the game we play. As citizens of the kingdom of heaven, we operate with mercy because we understand that the real battle is not between the political right and the political left. The real battle, the way that Paul puts it in Colossians 1, is between the kingdom of heaven and what he calls the domain of darkness. Or the way Paul puts it in Ephesians 6, he says, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against what? The spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, against Satan, those who are with him, against sin, against death. That's the enemy. That's the very enemy that Jesus came to rescue us from. And if we have been saved by the merciful action of Jesus, that will motivate us toward merciful action toward others. Do you believe this? Do you see this attribute evident in your life? In the way you treat others? In the way you think of others? Pity plus action for those in just as helpless a situation as you were before Jesus transformed your life. This is the blessed life. Let's look at the next one. Verse eight. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I mean, just stop and think about that last part, the reward. What's the payoff of this one? To see God. The very God who said to Moses in Exodus 33, no man may see me and live. Jesus says those who are pure in heart will one day see God and not be destroyed by him. 
Wow. That sounds like a good thing. But think about the first phrase, blessed are the pure in heart. What does that mean? Think about that with me for a second. Because again, purity of heart, when we hear that heart, sometimes we can just think of that as the internal, the inward part of us. And I think that is truly what Jesus is talking about. But this is a purity that doesn't just stay on the inside. This isn't just about being clean on the inside or even just the way that God sees us by grace in his eyes. Purity of heart also has to do with the way that we operate in our relationships with others. What does Jesus say later on? He says, it's out of our heart that our what? Our mouth speaks. So if your words are impure and, and, and ill-fitting and dis, like putting down to others, what does that reveal about the condition of your heart? Do you see that? It won't just stay on the inside. It is talking about the way that we operate in relationships with others with a sense of sincerity and honesty. It has to do with the motivations of our actions. We're not trying to hoodwink people, manipulate them, or even just impress people with our actions. In many ways, the purity of heart that Jesus is talking about here, it's the opposite of what he'll talk about later on in chapter six, where he says, be careful of doing your acts of righteousness to be seen by others for the purpose of having people putting on a show acting a certain way when you know people are watching when the camera's rolling versus when it's not. In many ways, I think the beatitude that Jesus talks about here, it's like the one we looked at last week with, uh, about meekness. I think this is another place where Jesus is clearly alluding to the Old Testament. He's quoting from the Old Testament. He's quoting from, or at least uh, he's hinting back very clearly at one of the Psalms of David, Psalm 24. Look at this with me really quickly. This may be somewhat familiar to you. David writes this, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false or does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him who seek the face of the God of Jacob, Selah. Do you see the connection between what Jesus says in Matthew 5 verse 8 and this one? Blessedness and purity of heart. There's a very clear goal, destination, target that David talks about there in verse 1, right? Or verse 3, the, the first verse on the slide. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can go approach God's presence? I think David, from an Old Testament context, he's referring to the tabernacle or the temple there in Jerusalem, the, the place where God's presence was located and centralized among the people of Israel and those who could draw near to the outer courts of the temple in order to offer sacrifices. Who are those who can draw near to God there? But Jesus takes it and escalates it, doesn't he? Not just who can approach God in the temple courts, but who can see him? See him as he is face to face. That sounds good. But the qualification is the same or the requirement. Clean hands, David says, and a pure heart. Again, not just the internal part of our lives, but the way we, we act and operate, the work of our hands and our relationships with others. Only the pure in heart can approach God. But here's the problem. 
Jesus makes it very clear, especially later on, like in Matthew 15, that far from being the source of purity, our hearts are actually the source of where sin comes from. Look what he says in Matthew 15. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. Far from being what purifies us, what comes out of our hearts is what defiles us. And if that is true, what hope is there for any of us to see God in this condition? Here's the hope. The very God who can only be approached by the pure in heart is the one who purifies our hearts. Amen? He is the one who cleanses us of our sin. One of the most glorious promises in the whole of the Old Testament is found in Ezekiel chapter 36. Where God talks about what he would do for the people of Israel after they'd already been exiled and judged because of their rebellion against God. He says a day would come when I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. Not clean yourselves up. I will clean you. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, he says. And put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you, cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Do you see the beauty of this promise? The very purity that we need that we do not have ourselves. Much like Jesus said, those who hunger and thirst after righteousness because they know they don't have it, will be satisfied. Those who recognize that apart from purity of heart, we will not see God are those who come to God and say, purify me, cleanse me, do what you've promised to do. Remember back in Matthew chapter three, we we're learning about John the Baptist, the forerunner for Jesus. He came baptizing people with water, kind of similar to what we did this morning. But he said that the one that came after him would baptize people differently. Do you remember what he said? He says, I baptize you with water, but the one who comes after me will baptize people with what? The Holy Spirit and with fire. I think one of the many passages I think that John the Baptist was alluding to was right here in Ezekiel 36. Jesus is the one who baptizes people with the Holy Spirit. He is the one who gives the Spirit to cleanse, give a new heart, and now train us as God's people to live differently, to walk in the way of Jesus. This is what Jesus has come to do. And if you have come to Jesus by faith, not through your own effort, but trusting in who Jesus is for you and what he has done for you, this purity of heart, this new heart is a present reality in your life. Not a perfect, perfected reality yet. Remember we talked about those Beatitudes describe an already not yet way of living. But the Spirit has been given to those of us who follow Jesus to purify our hearts, to root out deception and manipulation and selfishness and self-interest from our motivations, make us authentic, honest people in, our, in the way that we operate with others. This work is not completed, but it definitely has begun. 
So the question I would ask you is this, if you are a follower of Jesus, do you see this quality of purity, genuineness in your life? Do you loathe hypocrisy when you see it in your life? Not just in others. Oh, it's so easy to beat up others for their hypocrisy. Does it seriously bug the heck out of you when you go, I know I was just acting that way because other people were watching. I know my family saw right through that. They know I don't act this way when I'm not around church people. Do you loathe that in your life? Do you act a different way when you're at home with coworkers, with classmates? Do you perhaps try to present a very manicured, curated version of your life in public or maybe on social media? And you know full well, hey, that's, that's just because there's some good filters on Instagram. That's the only way my life looks like that, right? Do you fear being found out? Do you fear if people saw you for who you honestly are? Do you long for purity, for authenticity in your life, in your actions, in your relationships with others? Jesus says, this is the blessed life. The pure in heart will see God. Do you want that? Do you want that? Because it's not only that the pure in heart, those who purified by faith in Jesus will one day see God. I would say this, those who long to see God, who put their hope your future expectation, your confidence on the promise that one day by grace, you will see God face to face. If that is the target that your life is aiming at, like, like David talked about in Psalm 24, I want to ascend that hill. I want to be in God's presence. That will have a purifying effect in your life now. Listen to the way that John talks about this in 1 John chapter 3. This is John, one of the apostles of Jesus. And again, I think he is exactly reflecting on the words that we just see here in the, in the, in the Beatitudes. He said, blessed, our beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be, the reality of who we are as God's adopted kids through Jesus, it has not yet appeared. We don't even see the fullness of the glory of who we are in Jesus. But we know this, that when he appears, when God appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. See him as he is and be transformed to be like him. And what effect should that have in our lives now? Look at verse three. Everyone who thus hopes, who looks to the future and says, if God says that, that's what I wanna count on, what I wanna build my identity and my future confidence around. Everyone who thus hopes in Jesus purifies himself just as he is pure. Do you hope? Do you long for? Do you put more confidence in the hope of seeing Jesus one day than the success of your 401k? What is your future hope? Does your future hope have a purifying effect in your life or does it make you even more suppress and curate and try to give a certain appearance to those around you? Is the hope of seeing Jesus one day the goal, the destination that you have in mind, the thing you desire? This is the blessed life. It has a purifying effect in our lives now.
Take a look at verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Those who act in mercy toward others, who act with pure and honest intentions, well, one of the defining marks of them is that they are not the kind of people who seek to stir up division and dissension and conflict between people. They're peacemakers. To be a peacemaker does not mean that you're like conflict averse, that you have a phobia of dealing with arguments with people. So therefore you tend to just be someone who says, okay, whatever you want to keep the peace. That's not the peace that this is talking about. To be a peacemaker is neither to belittle the causes of conflict between people, nor to see them as insurmountable, as, as, as obstacles that cannot be overcome. Peacemakers will even enter into conflict when necessary, not because you like to argue, not because you have to be right, but because you want to see things made right in that relationship. It is a desire for reconciliation, a desire for restoration of relationship, things to be set right. That's what the biblical idea of peace is all about. The Hebrew word shalom is not just talking about the end of conflict or the absence of fighting. Everybody just go to the room and be quiet so there's no more fighting in the house. It is things made right, everything as it ought to be. Relationships operating in a way that brings flourishing and growth and goodness from it. That's biblical peace. So a peacemaker is someone who looks at it and they goes, okay, if there's a wrench in the gear of this relationship, I'm gonna be dogged if I have to be. I'm going to be tenacious to find out the cause of the conflict and get it out so that peace can be made, so that things can function the way they ought to. One of the other defining marks of peacemakers is that they're willing to foot the bill. They're willing to foot the bill. They're willing to go to great personal costs to themselves in order to see things made right. A peacemaker isn't just a deal maker. A peacemaker doesn't just try to define for each party what each person needs to do in order to make things right. Here's what you need to do if you wanna be right with me. Peacemakers aren't just about let's meet halfway, which typically is much more about how you make a truce than you truly make peace, make ceasefire, not peace. Peacemakers act in generosity and mercy toward others because their goal is not just to get the relationship out of the red, if you will, but to leave that relationship with a surplus of blessedness, goodness that it can grow from. That's what it means to be a peacemaker. And Jesus says that those who live this way will be called sons of God, called sons of God. He's using a Hebrew idiom, a, a turn of phrase in, the, in the, the Jewish language, in the Hebrew language, that isn't so much talking about like genetics or heredity. It's not just saying that you're like biologically related to someone. It's, it's, it's a way of saying that someone's character fits with someone else's. D.A. Carson put it this way, it's to be a partaker of the character of someone. In many ways, this idea to be called the son of God is similar to maybe American idioms that you might be a little bit more familiar with. They might be a little dated, some, some of you young people. I might teach you something new here. Oh, that kid's a chip off the old block. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. 
What do we mean by those sayings? Not just you're biologically related to your parent, but you're acting like them. Your character fits with theirs. You're doing, that's something, maybe it's just a mannerism, the tone of voice, the body posture. <laughs> you look just like your dad or just like your mom. You're a chip off the old block. That's what Jesus is saying here. When God's people act to seek peace in our relationships with others, we are acting like our father in heaven. Jesus will use the same idiom later on at the end of chapter five when he says this. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father in heaven. Because what does our father do? He makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Jesus is saying that citizens of his kingdom, those who come to him as king, demonstrate love for our enemies. We seek peace between ourselves and others. We seek to mediate between peace with others, even if we're not directly involved in the conflict, even assuming great cost in ourselves, because that's the character of our God, isn't it? That's what our God has done for us. God does not call us to meet him halfway. The way Paul puts it in Romans 5, God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still his enemies, Jesus died for us. The glory of the gospel is that in Jesus, God has come all the way to us. He has so richly provided us with all that is needed to make peace between us and him and to make peace between us and each other that as a result, those who come to God by faith, peace and peacemaking become defining characteristics of God's family defining characteristics of his kingdom. You will know that someone is a son or daughter of God by the way that they seek peace and pursue it, especially peace between one another because the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. This is the blessed life. This is the good life. But let's talk about this for a second because this is, as I said before, Jesus' description of the good life within a broken world. The reality is that oftentimes, despite our best efforts to make peace, peace is not always possible in some circumstances, in some relationships. We're often confronted with the limitations in our ability to make peace in this world. And again, look at the example of Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate peacemaker, the one who went to great personal cost to make peace. But the peace that Jesus offered to those who would come to him was only accessible by those who came to him, right? Jesus is called in the book of Isaiah, the Prince of Peace. Peace is an expression of his kingdom. It is kingdom peace. But just as Jesus' kingdom could be rejected by people, the peace that he offered was often rejected as well. Take a look at this. Later on in the book of Luke, this is at the triumphal entry toward the end of Jesus' ministry when he is ushered into the city of Jerusalem with all this fanfare as the king who's come in the name of the Lord. 
And yet while all the people are cheering, Jesus is weeping. Look what he says in Luke 19. When he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Jesus is weeping, he says after that, because he knows that within one generation, the Romans would march in and raise the city and carry the people off and massacre the majority of them. And he says that this was happening because they did not know the things that made for peace. His peace could be rejected. And often for us as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, living among the broken kingdoms of this world, despite our efforts to make peace, there's limitations to it. Maybe I'm saying that and you're going, yeah, yeah, you don't need to tell me that. That is the lived reality of my life right now. There's situations in your life, perhaps they've gone on for years where you have sought multiple times to make peace. Could we just talk about it? If I've done something to hurt you, would you tell me? And the other party is disinterested or they don't trust your motivations. And despite your efforts, as it were, to throw water on the fire to put it out, it's like it's a grease fire in the kitchen. And the more you throw water on it, it just spreads. Maybe you look at this and you're actually kind of dreading this week to come because you know some of those broken relationships you need to sit around and have a Thanksgiving meal with on Thursday. And you're kind of sitting there going, okay, how is everybody going to fit in the living room with that giant elephant in the room that we can't talk about? And I don't just mean that as a joke. Man, that is often the reality that we deal with. And if that's the case, if despite your honest efforts, even at great cost to yourself, not just to meet people halfway, go further than halfway to make peace. If it still has not been possible, I want to encourage you with something that Paul says later on in Romans chapter 12. He says this, if possible, because it's not always possible, as much as, it, or so far as it depends upon you, because there's only so much that depends upon you, live peaceably with all. Do what is possible, do what is possible from your side of the equation to keep seeking peace. There is limits. Sometimes peace is not possible, but that does not mean we throw in the towel. And that definitely does not mean that we give up on trying to love those who are our enemies and say, fine, let's just go back to fighting our enemies because that was more natural to us. But I think what Romans 12 tells us is that our goal, our focus should be more on our intention and motivation to make peace than necessarily the results of our efforts. Sometimes the results are not in our control, but what we are responsible for is our intention, our motivation, both as a church community, as we operate in the community that we live in, as individuals in our varied relationships, our goal is to seek to create with the help of God an environment in which peace is possible, where peace can be made, where the door remains open for reconciliation, at least on our side of the equation. And this necessitates a ton of meekness and mercy and purity of heart. Do you see how these descriptions are connected to each other? This beatitude that Jesus talks about here, it is in radical contrast to what we see around the world. 
but we see the natural way of operating in the world. Rather than blessed are the peacemakers, most often the way that our world functions is like this. Blessed are those who come out on top. Blessed are those who turn the tables, who give their oppressors a taste of their own medicine. Revenge is a dish that's best served cold. And yet here is Jesus. Here is Jesus saying that the truly blessed life looks like loving our enemies, looks like turning the other cheek, praying for those who mistreat us, taking the initiative to make peace. So I ask you again, do you believe that this is the blessed life? That this is the good life? That though it is hard, it leads to life now and forevermore. You see, there's no coincidence that the beatitude, blessed are the peacemakers, is directly followed by this one. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The way of life that Jesus lays out to us here is so counterculture, it is so counterintuitive to the way that all of us live, that those who reject it historically and even today, those who truly consider this message and then choose to reject it usually will not stop at saying, no thanks, and just making, going along their way. They will react against it. They will fight against this way of life because not only do they not see it as blessed and good, they will often see it as wrong and evil. Maybe even for some of you, that's the thought in your mind as we've been going through this last week and this week. You look at the problems in our world, the problems in our country and the supposed causes and fixes of it in your mind. And then you read these beatitudes and you think, this can't possibly be good. How is this gonna fix the problem? This might actually make it worse. You might even be thinking as you hear me today, can you wrap this up? Cause I'm done. I am done with this. I've given Jesus a chance and I'm done. And not only that, I'm not gonna just say no thanks. I'm gonna get on social media this afternoon and write up a whole thing about what this guy said is actually evil and wrong. And I wanna warn people about this because not only do I not see it as good, I think it's the problem. And if that's you, while that would sadden me, I guess I would just say you're not the first person to respond to this message that way, nor will you be the last. As a matter of fact, that's what Jesus says. He says, this is in many ways what we should expect because those who are persecuted for righteousness sake for seeking to live this way, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is what it means to live as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven in this world. This is what Jesus tells us to expect. And he says, it's blessed. Expect this. If you've been paying attention, you recognize that we are in a bit of a rapid shift in our society here. Increasingly, day by day, things that the Bible has always taught, things that Christians have believed for 2,000 years, are increasingly seen as not just religious, old-fashioned tradition, but bigoted, evil, hateful. It may not be long before that goes from just words that people say about us to beyond hurtful speech, mocking, exclusion, to more painful forms of persecution. 
I would say maybe even for some of you of a younger generation, this may be more of a present reality in your life than it is for some of us older. If you grew up in a different culture where very much there was active opposition to the message of Jesus. I'm so glad you're here. We need to learn from you. We need to learn the tenacity, the, the, the perseverance, the believing in the prize that awaits us, that makes it worth it to endure what is hard now. We all need to pay close attention to what Jesus says. Those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And when we are persecuted for righteousness sake, when we are persecuted for our association with Jesus, here's what Jesus says in verses 11 and 12. He says, blessed are you. These aren't yous, these are y'alls. He makes a shift here from the more general blessed are those to now speaking specifically to his disciples. And he says, y'all who've left to follow me, blessed are y'all when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you on my account. Rejoice, he says, be glad. This is a blessed thing, though it is hard. Why is it blessed? Why should we rejoice and be glad? He gives us two reasons. First one, he says, your reward is great in heaven. It will be worth it. Whatever you might lose now in terms of prestige, popularity, you will more than gain in the time to come. As we'll find out later on in chapter six, this treasure in heaven, moth and rust can't destroy it. Thieves can't break in and steal it. The stock market can't crash it. Global warning can't burn it up or flood it. It will endure. It will be worth it for now and forever. He says, look ahead, it'll be worth it. But he also says there, he says, look back too. Look at the line of faithful people that you stand in. Is this not the way that the people of Israel treated the prophets who came before them? People in our day often talk about what it means to be on the right side of history. You want to act in such a way now that when they write the history books a generation or two, you'll be on the good side, not the bad side. Think way beyond just the next generation or two. Do you want to truly be on the right side of history? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Blessed are those who are persecuted for their association with Jesus because that's how the prophets of old were treated. That's the way Jesus himself was treated. And if apprenticing with Jesus, being a disciple is about learning to become like him, should we not to be, expect to be treated similarly the way Jesus was treated? Later on in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus will make that exact point. Hey, if they, if they call me Beelzebub, Satan, how do you think they'll treat you? Now, perhaps when you came to know Jesus at the summer camp or whenever it was when you came to know Jesus, this part of it was not presented to you. I don't know if I signed up to be persecuted by all people. Okay, but that same Jesus that you saw offered you forgiveness, reconciliation, life forevermore. Do you believe he's good? Do you still believe that the way of life he's called you to is good? And trust him even here. Let me finish with this. What happens though, if people don't respond to us this way? What does it mean if rather than being persecuted for righteousness sake or for our association with Jesus, people have no response to us? Can't tell the difference between us and everyone else. In Luke's gospel, he records a shortened version of this same sermon 
with even with some of these same Beatitudes. But what Luke does is he records a flip side from Jesus. Not just statements of blessing, but statements of woe, of judgment. And on this one in particular, here's what Luke says in the words of Jesus. But woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. You see, the way we live before the world around us and the way the world around us reacts to us is a very, very important data point on which we can either hang our confidence that we are God's children or perhaps have our confidence shaken. So let me ask you this, my church family. What do those around us see in us? How do they respond to us? Does the way we live as individuals and as a church community, does it even provoke a response to those around us? Can they see a difference? Do we keep our, to ourselves too much that they don't see a difference? Is the difference that they see the same one fought about in the world around us, liberals and conservatives lobbing bombs at each other, which are just two merely human ways of trying to address problems in the world? We are citizens of a different kingdom. We are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We have been called to live differently in this world. And this is the description of our character. These beatitudes shape what it means for us to live differently in this world. Next week, Todd's gonna take us through the next part where Jesus sums up all these characteristics by saying, this is what it means to be salt in the world. This is what it means to be the light of the world. But man, if salt loses its flavor, if you all just put your light under a basket, that's not what I've called you to. Instead, live in such a way before people that they see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. This way of living is essential to our witness, amen? I'm gonna ask the band to come back up. I'm gonna throw these same, just as they come up, these same questions up on the screen. Thinking back through these Beatitudes, do you believe that this truly is the blessed life? Do you believe that living, learning to live this way is essential to our witness to those around us? Are you willing to follow Jesus on this path and encourage others to take the same path? If you need prayer, again, like Dylan said, there'll be some of us up in the prayer room that would love to pray for you. We're gonna respond by singing a song in which we're gonna sing back to God some of these same beatitudes called This is the Kingdom. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you again that these beatitudes do not just set the bar high that we have to try to achieve it on our own. You do set the bar high here. And yet you say, Jesus, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. I will make you the kind of people who exhibit meekness and mercy and peace, lovers of enemies pure in heart, even in the midst of persecution, because it is worth it for the hope of seeing you, for the hope of living in such a way that it helps others to see you. Lord, would you increase our faith that it is worth it to follow you on this hard path and it will be worth it forevermore. We ask this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.